All right. Well, welcome everybody back to another Country Drive. And I am honored today to have my friend and a Nashville legend in studio today, Miss Pam Lewis. I'm beklempt. Thank you for having me. Uh, I've been holding off on calling you recently because since we, we talk often, but I wanted to start by asking you about this recent trip you took. Oh, my goodness. So I really love, I'm a nester, so I love my house. You've been to my house. But I also love to travel. I'm a Sagittarian. So I'm, I'm checking off all these places that I want to visit, visit before I kick the bucket. So last year it was Morocco. This year was Banff, Lake Louise, and most recently Ecuador and Galapagos. So um, pretty life-changing stuff. Great fun. I want to show you something. Ben, if we have it, uh, if you can pull it up. I want you, <laughs> let me let him put this on the feed. And for the people that are just listening, I want you to describe what's happening and then. Okay, so this is in the middle of the Amazon jungle. We stayed at a lodge that was totally solar power. You couldn't plug your phone in. Um, there was no AC and uh, you had to conserve water, etc. cetera. Uh, it was right on the Amazon River. And this is a shaman and he was our host, Holger, and he was doing a uh, shamanic ritual, a cleansing ritual and a blessing for me. And do you love the blue boots? So the blue boots match the blue-footed boobies that I saw in Galapagos. <laughs> um, but it was very cool and uh, powerful. So what he's holding over Pam's head, for people that are just listening, is um, a branch with a bunch of leaves on it. And I guess, yes, is it palm. a certain kind of leaf? Yeah, palm, palm leaves. And yeah, and then he started whistling and blowing. And it was one of those, who wants to do it? And I'm like, I will. So it was a birthday present to myself. My birthday was uh, Thanksgiving this year. So I went, um, this whole year I've been celebrating my birthday. What happens in the shamanic uh, ritual? Like what is the what is the outcome supposed to be? Or is um, there supposed to be an outcome? It's a cleansing. It's cleansing. It's grounding, spiritual grounding. I will tell you, I was a, I've been a little left of center, frankly, since the trip. And part of it is uh, you're going from... 10,000 feet to sea level. And uh, I mean, one day I took four flights. So I've been a little daft. So um, I don't know. I just, I believe, I mean, I, I stay open. I, I get up in the morning, I listen to Hindu chanting. I listen to the Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. Uh, then I read three Christian devotionals. So I'm just sort of open. Oh yeah, you're a worldly woman. Well, I just need guidance anywhere I get it. Amen. <laughs> need help. Don't we all? Yeah. Uh, well, I want to talk to you about some of your growth in your career, but I'm going to take you all the way back to the beginning when you helped launch MTV, hmm. a channel that I enjoy growing up with. But then when I got a little older, it was no longer music television. But tell me about the beginnings of MTV. Okay. So I went to Wells College, which was really pivotal to, for me. And uh, I was getting ready to graduate and I didn't have a job. So I did an interview that was uh, orchestrated by the president of my college and I interviewed at CBS in New York. And I thought, wouldn't that be cool to work for a network television? And Paula Gottschalk was very sweet and she said, I don't have a job for you, but go talk to my friend, Margaret Wade. And I went in and I talked to this lanky Mississippian who was a character, chain smoke cigarettes. And she said, I'll hire you, but don't go after my job. And we already had Nickelodeon, the movie channel, and we were launching something called The Music Channel, which became MTV. Mm -hmm. Look, we're talking on the ground floor. And we didn't have the channel capacity in Manhattan, 
So nobody could see it in Manhattan. So we actually launched it in New Jersey. We flipped the switch in New Jersey. And I had to send air checks to all of these journalists, or they had to come to my office to watch air checks to get them to write about it. So we we needed Madison Avenue, we needed advertising, and we needed videos. And it was lean. It was lean and mean in the beginning. So we had a lot of uh, European videos. We had David Bowie. We had Men at Work, Australian group. We had uh, Adam Ant, you know, and uh, Dexie's Midnight Rider and The Buggles, which was the first video. So um, it was baptism by fire. It was very cool. Was that video kill the radio star? You got it. That was the first video. First one. Unbelievable. Trivia first concert, you know, the first concert we did that we filmed, mm-hmm. REO Speedwagon at the Garden. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, was pretty Was it all amazing. music videos? All music. And then we did something that was really avant-garde at the time. Doesn't sound so much now, but we did something called interstitial programming. And so that meant what, what went on between the shows. So it was basically interviews. It was interviews with, oh, God, let's see. Robert Plant was one of the first people to say yes. Billy Joel was one of the first people to say yes. Um, Paul Simon. And so that was like dominoes. It's like, well, if Paul did it, then Mm -hmm. I'll do it. Mm -hmm. So I've got a great story, a Billy Joel story. So this was over on 11th and like in the 50s was where we would tape. And this is where a lot of the working girls were. And we would send a limo to go pick up the artists. And the limo had to make a turn to get to the studio. And the girls would stand on the corner and they would rub their <laughs> against the windows. And they would pull their t- tank tops down or their, you know, the tube tops. People wear, they would wear tube tops at the time. So Billy Joel walks in and he goes, There's a music video out there. Because all these Tootsies were out there. It's like strutting their stuff. So, and I think he had a couple of expletives. But anyway, yeah. So it was the early VJs, it was uh, Mark. Goodman, Nina Blackwood, Alan Hunter, and Martha Quinn. Those are the four back in the day. And we had like no, like not a lot of money. It was all like lean and mean. All of the artists did their own. All of, uh, all the artists, we didn't have a makeup person there. The VJs did their own makeup. And uh, I don't know if Alan was from Birmingham, but his brother lives there. And I went to high school. His nephew was a year younger than me. And speaking of Alan... Ben, on that picture, let's show everyone at home oh my how goodness. far back we go. So here's Pam with Alan Hunter and the Tina Turner. And Nina. And Nina. Behind me. Now, Nina played harp, and I am wearing suede pants. That's at the Ritz. It's backstage at the Ritz. And look at that nice bottle of champagne, which I know I didn't pay for. I think it's Moet. But Nina, Nina had some Bon Jovi hair. She sure did. Or Bon Jovi had like, Nina's hair. She did like the root perm. Alan Jackson was, uh, was of course, an actor, too. He was very theatrical, and he was in a uh, David Bowie video. There's an, Alan Jackson was in one of the David Bowie videos, the one with the clowns, whatever that one was. He's in it. So he was being very theatrical and funny, and he came off, and he was, like, off shot, and he wanted to enter the shot onto the, onto the uh, you know, this where they were staging everything, and he did a cartwheel, put his foot right through the camera. <laughs> the camera. And just to be clear, we're not talking about the Alan Jackson. We're talking about another one. No, did I say Alan Jackson? 
I'm so sorry. Let's we do that. That's Alan Hunter. Alan Hunter. My apologies. No, Alan Jackson is too tall. He really would have heard well. it. No, Alan Hunter. My my bad. I did work with Alan Jackson too. But anyway, yeah, Alan Hunter, and um, it was like, oh my God, I had now he had to pay, he had to had to replace the camera. What did that mean to your career to get your start with MTV, learning the business? Well, you know, it was back in the day where you like. You were considered a germ if you asked for an autograph, if you got in a photograph. So this is just by the grace of God. I think you found this, mm-hmm. that I even had this thing. Um, so it was just like, listen, do a lot of listening, do a lot of note-taking. I, I realized that there was a lot of distrust with journalists. The journalists never thought you were going to follow through. So if you actually followed through and did what you were going to do and sent them what they needed, you were golden. And... Um, you know, it was a really dynamic, fun place to work, I have to say. It was just, I was like the new kid, you know, I was just a kid. I was just a pup right out of college. And I started college early, so I was really young. Well, I figured it was going to be a lot of help for you in learning how to make sure you're marketing your artist to the video company since back then that was the major avenue to be for discovery. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so after MTV, you moved to Nashville, correct? Got a job offer to move to Nashville. Did not want to move to Nashville. I was living in Manhattan. And I accepted the job. And my friends were like, are you kidding? You're moving to Nashville? And they're like, moving to Nashville. I mean, that's how they would say it. And I was like, I cannot believe I'm living in a central time zone. I mean, that was just a mind blower for me. I had been to Nashville. I had come to visit with my family and been to the Grand Ole Opry. We went to the World's Fair. Um, but I just didn't expect to live here. And I thought, well, you know, it kind of looks like upstate New York where I'm from and the rolling hills and I could have horse again, I could ride. So I sort of made the best of it. Um, but it was a whole different town, Taylor. I mean, it was backwater and a very much a friend of mine used to call it the campus. Like Music Row was like a campus. You just ran into people that you knew. And I can remember people just dropping by my office and my my secretary would say, you know, Taylor Swade's here. And I was like, does he have an appointment? Because in New York, you didn't drop by anybody's office. You know, you had an appointment. It was much more casual. And I remember people would, they'd eat lunch at 11 o'clock. I'm like, who the hell eats lunch at 11 o'clock? You know, that just wasn't done in New York. Um, so it was definitely culture shock. I was I was into vintage clothes and they were like, you dress funny. <laughs> I was like, I guess I do, but Okay. So, yeah, I stuck it out, but I got fired. Oh, when you got to Nashville? Yeah. But who did you, where did you get fired from? RCA. So you were working for, let's see. Mr. Galante. Joe Galante Mm -hmm. and Tony Brown? Tony. Okay, so Tony is part of the reason that I moved to Nashville because I met Tony backstage at MTV and he was like, hi, who are you? And I'm like, I'm... Pam Lewis, and I was with this guy, John Bellissimo, who was shooting all the shows at the time, and he was my boyfriend. So he would get hired to shoot all of the different artists for the different record labels. And he hated country music. I mean, he was, he's like, I got to go shoot these hillbillies. Why don't you come with me? And I went, and I had nothing to do. I had a backstage pass. I said, sure, I'll go. Free food, you know, get a beer or whatever. And I'm backstage, and I don't know who I'm talking to. I'm just trying to be nice and friendly and not get thrown out. And they're like, what do you do? And I, I said, I'm with John. He's our, your photographer tonight. He's shooting the show. And they're like, well, what do you do? Are you work in the business? I said, yeah, I work at MTV. And they're like, you work at MTV. Oh my God. So Tony's like, 
can I get some swag? So I got him whatever, you know, whatever I could get. I would send it to him and I got to be friendly. And I'm standing backstage talking to Randy Goodman, Tony Brown, Joe Galante, Cynthia Spencer, who was the marketing person. I have no idea who these people are. And I think because I wasn't, I was too naive to be intimidated. They thought, oh, she's pretty cool and she's confident and so they offered me this job. They called one day and they said, call in sick. We're sending you a ticket, fly to Nashville. I'm like, I'm not interested. They're like, just shut up and come. Do you, can you imagine you saying I'm not interested? So I went, called in sick, bought a billboard on the way to the airport. And I said, well, somewhere, somewhere in here is a, uh, gotta be a country music playlist. I mean, I have no idea where it is. So I look, and I'm like, okay, RCA, RCA, RCA. So I went in there, and I said, congratulations on Islands in the Stream. And so like, oh, she's done her research. Little did they know. And they offered me a job, and it was really a good offer. They were going to pay for me to move here, pay all my moving expenses, move all my stuff, put me in a hotel, get me a car, give me a travel and expense report. I was like 24, 25. I mean, it was like heady stuff, right? But I had never driven, really. I had a license, but I lived in Manhattan. And when I was in college, I didn't have a car. So now I had to, like, drive. And I was like, oh, my God, it's the interstate. Oh, what am I going to do? I can remember driving out to the Opryland uh, to go cover a show out there. For um, It was Opry, and then we had different television shows that would tape out there. And I was mortified. And I was like, okay, Pam, you've traveled all around the world and you've lived in Manhattan, you can do this. But I had to like talk myself through it because I really was afraid to drive at the time. Isn't that funny to say that, but. Who were some of the artists you were working with at RCA? Vince Gill, one of my favorites. He's um, the man. Let's see, Steve Warner, Bill Medley, Righteous for the Righteous Brothers, Alabama, uh, a duo that had just gotten signed, the Judds. And I was like, man, what a name. Good luck on that. Uh, la, 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 la. Let me think. Who else? Eddie Raven, extremely hardworking guy. Loved him. Louise Mandrell, Deborah Allen. Barbara Mandrell was my first ever concert. Babs. I got to work with Babs. Not at RCA, but later I worked with her. What's your best story from RCA with the artist you had to work with? Well, I was a huge fan of Mr. Gill. And How could you not be? He, I, he, very funny. You know, and, and his manager, Mary Martin, was hysterical. And she was like, she'd call me up. She's from Canada and she swore like a trooper. And she's like, uh, when are you going to lunch? I said, I'm not. She said, you need to go to lunch. I said, I don't plan to go to lunch, Mary. She'd be, GD it, I need you to go to lunch. And I said, why am I going to lunch? She said, because I need to make some long distance phone calls and I need your office. So I like let her take my office and I, I just love Mary and I was trying to help Vince and Vince was kind of struggling, not quite there at RCA at the time. So I get, I get a phone call one day and my secretary, Erin, buzzes me and she said, Rolling Stone's on the phone. I'm like, oh my God, I just sent a, there was an album called The Things That Matter. I just sent a pitch on Vince to Rolling Stone. So they must have gotten it. I'm like, oh my God, how exciting. So the guy gets on the phone and he's like, hey, thanks, thanks for sending the record. And this Vince is pretty interesting. And we're not going to be able to do a whole story on him, but we're going to do a wrap up story on artists that have moved from one genre of music to another. And we would like to feature him. Um, great, because he was in Pure Prairie League. And of course, he played with a hot band and worked with Emmy and you know, great pedigree. I'm so excited. 
So the guy says, well, one of the things that we're, we're going to have to ask him, because we do a lot of politics, is his alleged homosexuality. And I'm like, huh. I'm like, ah. Uh, I don't think I don't think you have that right. I said he's married. He has a little girl named Jenny. His wife's name is Janice. Like I know Vince. I don't. I, uh, that's not right. And I hear this laughter. And I hear, boy, you're good. You really believe in me. And I said, not anymore. I don't. I said, you son of a. Mm-mm. And it was Vince. But I'm on like a half hour. I'm yabbering about but, how wonderful Vince Gill is. And he just lets you go on and oh, on and on. Totally. Totally. So I've so when I see him, it's been how many years ago? I'm like, hey, how's how's Rolling Stone? You've been in Rolling Stone lately? And we just laugh, you know. He says, Hey pal. First man I ever saw put salt in beer. And his father did. I had I remember having lunch with him. I'm like, what are they doing? I guess to get a fo- foam, to get a foamy head. Never hmm. saw that before. But anyway. Yep. Never heard of it myself. I know. Uh so when you leave RCA, you said you got fired. Is that when you started PLA Media? I started doing freelance and Tony Brown threw me work, who was wonderful. And so I work with Lyle, love it. I work with Steve Earle. Um, eventually I found my way to, to Towns, but he was not, actually that was through Steve Earle. Steve was like, Steve said to me, you think I'm bad? I'm gonna introduce you to Towns. That was his quote. So I met Towns. What was Towns Van Zant like in working with him? Brilliant, mm-hmm. tortured funny, uh, a gentleman. Um, I mean, I can remember him being total, I could not walk, but he would walk me out to my car. Like he literally could hardly walk him. It says, okay, Towns, I got it. No, no, babe, come on, I'm taking you out to your car. You can't get out to your car by yourself. I got to open the door. I'm like, you're going to fall on your butt. Um, and I work with his wife, Janine, who is a character, um, did several projects with them over the years. And just, you know, he gave up heroin. He could just never give up the bottle. I mean, he died he was in his 50s. It's really sad. Uh, incredibly charismatic. Um, his granddad, I believe, yeah, was the governor of Texas. So he was being groomed to go into politics. Um, they gave him electroshock therapy. Oh, my gosh. Because, of, you know, just his, he had issues. Yeah. It's, it's so weird to me, but not surprising, how some people... The trouble, the troubled soul types, just make the best art. The best are usually troubled. Yeah, it's it kind of goes with the territory. I think they're wound. God blesses them with all of this magic and sensitivity, but it makes it very difficult for them to live in the world. In because re- they think different. They're wired differently. They're, and I think that there's really. A lot of manic depression. I mean, most creative people I know, their highs are high, their lows are low. I worked with Charlie Pride. Charlie was manic depressive. He was one of the acts I work with at an RCA. And he came out and talked about it. He was one of the first artists to do that. Wow. I worked his book, uh, William Morrow. We had a book that came out. Well, um, speaking of a guy who almost is the direct opposite of a lot of troubled souls that became a big star... Because like we were talking about Elvis last week, Mm. um, you know, and that man had such an amazing career and then such a tragic downfall and, you know, life ended too soon. But in... It was so trapped. You know, Elvis was trapped. That's what we talked about last week with being isolated by the colonel. Big time. I mean, your your success is... Colonel got 50% of him, Taylor. I imagine. 
He did. I have. That's a, why I always loved Dolly for standing up to him that night when when he yes. wanted to do "I Will Always Love You." Yes, she's amazing. So your next client is going to become a rocket ship, and just like you helped launch MTV, you helped launch Garth Brooks, and I want to know that whole story. Okay, so first, the first part of the story is meeting Bob Doyle, and Bob had been asking around about me. I didn't know this, but he was. And Bob is really different than I am. You'll have to talk to him. He's very reserved. He's from St. Louis. You kind of have to, it takes a while for him to open up and for you to kind of read him. And I'm kind of like, but, and so he kept wanting to have meetings with me. And I was like, uh, like, is he hitting on me? Like, what does he want? I couldn't figure it out. He was at ASCAP. He was an executive at ASCAP. And finally he says, I'm leaving ASCAP. And I've got this boy I want you to meet. And I think I'm going to start a management company. I'm going to leave. And um, would you be interested? And I need somebody who knows. I'm not in the wheelhouse that you are. And I had worked with a lot of cool acts by that point. So the, the boy, the boy, who's just a tad younger than I am, was Garth. And Bob is another, whatever, 12, 15 years older than than us, right? So um, I met him, and I I remember one of the earliest meetings, I came over to Bob's office, and Bob had this Haitian cotton sofa, and here's this guy with this Malamute dog, and he tips his hat, and he says, hey, ma'am, and I'm like, ma'am? What do you mean, ma'am? I'm like looking behind me, and I said, please just call me Pam. It's totally, like, we're like the same age, practically. What are you doing, dude? Well, it's just the way I was you know so um uh, he wasn't running around being a maniac he wasn't throwing water he was just singing his song and there was something about the way he sang that was really captivating and i thought you know he's like boy next door he's got those blue eyes i think i could figure out how to work with this guy and i had already worked with lots of crooners and by that point and so i had sort of called management shots at the time, but I wasn't getting paid to be a manager. I had been doing artist development and PR and marketing and consulting and whatnot. So Bob and I formed Doyle Lewis Management. And then we set about trying to get him a record deal. And everybody said no. (laughs) There were a lot more labels in town at the time. The only place we didn't go was RCA because they had Clint Black. And there was no way that it would make sense for Joe to sign him. So I was at home one night and I, I wasn't even out with Bob and, and Garth. They were just being guys and, you know, going to Bluebird. They were going to, I guess he was going to do a little fill-in mm-hmm. one song kind of deal. So I'm either watching TV or, I don't know, reading a book or something. And the phone rings and it's like 1130. And Bob's like, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? He said, um... Lynn Schultz wants us to come back in and talk to him. Now, we had just been to Lynn's office, and Lynn was a friend of mine at Capitol because I'd worked with Dan Seals and some Capitol acts, and he had passed. So Garth gets up to sing a song at the Bluebird. Lynn happened to be there, um, and he says to Bob, I think I missed something. Call me tomorrow. So Bob says, You're, you know him better than I do. we got to organize this. Let's set a meeting. Let's see if we what we can do. So we go in. We basically get offered like a singles deal, like kind of like a just a very basic, not even a full album kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And we were planning to bring Jerry Kennedy in, 
Bob really wanted to work with Jerry and Garth liked Jerry. Well, Lynn didn't get along with Jerry. So then we had to find another producer. And mind you, Tony was going to work with him. And Jimmy Bowen passed on him because mm-hmm. we took him to MCM because my old friend Tony. And Tony's like, I love this guy. And Tony, you know, had by that point had worked with George Strait and he knows exactly what to do with him. Bowen didn't get it. So now, anyway, that's how we ended up at Capitol. And because Lynn trusted, I said, well, what about Alan Reynolds? That's how it worked out. I said, what about Alan Reynolds? He's got his own studio. I, I heard lots of great things about him. He had worked with Crystal Gale. He had Hal Ketchum, uh, Don Williams. He was a song guy, Kathy Matea, and just had this real low-key, soft-spoken demeanor. And I thought maybe it would work. And it wouldn't be like he would be in a machine where he's just working four or five projects at, the, at a time. So that's how we got him to Alan. Little did we know, Alan was getting ready to close the studio and pull out. And, and he was like, well, let me, let me roll the dice. Over at Cowboy Jacks, is that what it was called? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> let me. So ask it was you. like Jack's Tracks, and now it's then it was Allentown, and now you know Garth. Garth bought the building. Yeah, I think which Garth, is great. I think he bought it and renamed it Allentown. Allentown. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then he put this wonderful addition on. So yeah. So in right 80- across from my building. Funny enough. Oh really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It's like full circle. Yeah. I have to come check it out next time I'm down there. Yeah, definitely. Uh in '89. So he comes out and he releases Much Too Young, and radio's not a big fan of it. It goes to number nine. Well, damn. He said, damn. Right. Like, That's what oh, I was going to say. Oh, my goodness. He said, damn. Right. There were people that wouldn't play it. And they were like, well, what's a Garth? We had, and then we had one guy play it because he's like, I want to hear what a Garth sounds like. That was one of the programmers said that. And then he follows up with a number one. So you're managing a guy that's on the rise. And we're paying, by the way, for independent promotion. We're not trusting anything. We're Bob and I are paying for independent radio promotion. Right. So here comes Garth Brooks to finish out the last album and start the second album with what might be one of the greatest one-two punches single-wise in the history of country music, from The Dance to Friends in Low Places. And, and that uh, that video catapulted. Right. And I remember calling Tony Arada, and Garth heard the dance at the Bluebird and said, I want that song, Tony. And then I said to Tony, when we finish the video, I'll call you. I called him. I said, hey, we're done. Come on over and take a look. And he just wept. He said, you've taken my song and you you made it even bigger than what I thought it could be. I mean, it has Kennedy. It has Lane Frost. It has MLK. Mm-hmm. But I brought that up because I wanted to ask you from like a- Challenger behi- from accident. Bi- right. From behind the scenes- what happens after the dance in Friends in Low Places where he just launches into a new stratosphere and kind of takes the entire genre with him? <laughs> well, so we finished with the dance and then we're getting ready to launch the next album, which was Offenses. No mm-hmm. And um, Colleen Brooks, Wester Soul, was just a firecracker, uh, Garth's mama. And she had a deal on Capitol, and she was on the Louisiana Hayride. So her little boy is living the dream that she imagined for herself. So she was a stage mom. So she would always want the advanced cassettes for anything that we were doing. And I, anytime there was, I, I would send packages, here's the latest press, and here you go, Colleen. She would call me, we would talk, we were friends. So she got a hold of the advanced cassette of No Fences, and she trots herself over to the local radio station in Oak City. 
and brings it to him. And she said, no, I got to get that back. Can't get, I can't leave it. Well, they burned a copy. And as she's driving home, she hears the album being played. And we, we are now, we're not supposed to launch it then. That's not part of what Capital wanted to do. We are messing up their marketing plan. She calls me, she's hysterical crying. I thought, I thought Raymond died. I thought her husband passed away, you know, dad, uh, her, uh, Gar's dad. So she told me what happened. And I was like, oh, goodness. So I called Bill Catino. He was like, hey, he's very, you know, Italian temper. God damn it. Da, da, da. So he's like, you, he says, we're going to have to do a cease and desist. You've ruined my whole plans to set this up, blah, 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 blah. And, and he says, and I mean it, don't call Bowen. I hang up the phone. I call Bowen. Bob's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm calling Bowen. Bowen's in Hawaii. He's like, hang on a second. I'm making a putt. I said, sorry to interrupt. He says, we're making a lot of money with you. You can call me anytime. So I told him what happened. He starts laughing. He goes, well, that's why Catino's blowing up my phone. I said, I got an idea. Why don't we put it out now? Jumpstart a little bit. And this single is too hot, hard to hold, too hot to hold. Coming out of the box, new, new project. He goes, yeah, we used to do that all the time in pop. He said, I'll just tell Catino to move things around. And I said, and, and take credit for it, Bowen. Just take credit for it. I said, I think I can get USA Today, USA Today to do something. And that was like at the time, big deal, right? Still is, but was at the time, really big deal. So that's how we jump started it. And it became this anthem for everybody going back to school. So like a frat, became, became like a frat song and it just, everybody loved it. And now you're talking about friends in low places. Correct. My mom told me that Friends when I was in, places. my mom was telling me that when I was in fifth grade, I demanded that when she picked me up, it would be playing on the radio, like playing when she picked me up in fifth grade. I yeah. mean, it was it was just like a it was phenomenal. It and was like he, a shift. Well, you know what? He cut it on the first record, but he didn't want to put it on the first record. And then Mark Wright cut it on on uh, Chestnut. Yeah, I know. And Garth was like. And so Chestnut says he runs he runs into Bob. No, I don't think he, maybe Bob was with him. I don't know. But anyway, long story short, Garth saw him and he's like, I'm putting that son of a bitch out. And so of course, like you are like hell and then put it out and beat him to the punch. But he didn't really, it wasn't a song that he was like, I'm, I'm really into this song. Yeah. You see I, what I'm saying? And, I know. I used But to it was a great song in concert. It was just such a signature and he, he, he could just play with it and his personality came out and you, you know, it was... I can remember when Garth did the acceptance speech for it, and he like apologized to the radio people. Said, I'm, "I know y'all are tired of playing this, but I'm thanks for the award." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's how that happened, and people think we orchestrated that. We did not. That was Colleen. Well, I have to be honest with you. I love Mark Chestnut. I, you know his his rendition of "I'll Think of Something" is one of my top probably 50 country songs of all time. But that song actually taught me. I remember being a kid thinking, you know, a hit song's a hit song. Whoever sang it doesn't matter. But if you go back and listen to Mark's version versus Garth, you can see where there is a huge difference huge in difference. which artist yeah. chooses which song. Well, yeah. He just, it was, um, the planets lined up. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. It really did. He did a lot of things that he doesn't get credit for because, you know, Garth's kind of all over the place. And I think some people resented his success. I mean, I, I can understand why he was so successful with people like you helping him out. But Garth did things that, Again, he doesn't get credit for, but you know, he did the Kiss album. 
Mm-hmm. You were with him when he did the Kiss album, right? Um, I think I was about like pretty much leaving at that point. Okay, yeah, I I didn't I didn't do um, yeah. I mean, I there was a lot of stuff that I was kind of on my way out. He he pushed the envelope, and there were I mean there were things that were going on, and I would say to him, you know what, if you do A, B, C, and D you're not going to get nominated for this or you're, you're not going to win. You're kind of making some enemies and you're, you're upsetting people. And he's like, I don't care. I said, okay, just telling you. And he said, you don't understand. You know that old adage, you're going to say, see the same people going up as you do going down. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm not seeing anybody going down. He goes, I'm not going to be one of those guys playing at the Holiday Inn. Well, And, and he hasn't. And he hasn't been. No, and so, he hasn't. But I just was like, okay, I want you to keep winning awards. I want you to keep being respected. I don't want people to hate your gods. You know, I was trying to look at it from, like, you don't have to listen to me, but I'm also wanting to bring opportunity to you and also tell you where I think you're you're making some mistakes. I mean, he had an opportunity to do a duet with Sinatra, and I put that together, and he didn't want to do it. I had him on the cover of Wheaties. I worked for a year. He's like, oh, I don't want people to think of cereal when they think of me. It was like a million bucks. It was unheard of. They had only done sports figures up to that point. So there were things where I'm like kind of scratching my head. And it was like, okay, all I can do is try to help guide your career. Mm-hmm. And um, and there were things that he did that I didn't agree with and kept him from doing. And I'm really glad I did because they were not cool, you know. So nobody's perfect. And I certainly wasn't perfect. And Overall, I think we all we did a great job. We worked hard together, and we have great success to feel proud of. And then he went on to the stratosphere with the launch that I started with him, you know? Well, I always thought it was weird when he got hate for, in some people's description, becoming bigger than country. When I was telling you about earlier with the Kiss album, you know, he went on Jay Leno to perform that song with Kiss. And what I thought was kind of lovable about what he did was he dressed like Garth. He sang like Garth. Some of the artists nowadays will change their look if they're with a mm. cross-genre performance. And I always thought that he was true to himself. And then Alan Reynolds told a story one time about um, how Garth said, I don't care if we're on the pop charts, but they got to come to us. We're not going to change our music. So I was just wondering like, what was happening behind the scenes. That's true. All of that's true. Um, I-, I used to go out on and shows and I would talk to people. And there were so many people said, I don't like country music, but I like Garth. Mm-hmm. So he did bring a lot of people. And he also, he was very humble about it. He's like, listen, if I look like George Strait, I could just stand there. I don't, I'm not as good looking. I'm not as, you know, my butt doesn't look as good as George Strait. All he has to do is turn around, people go nuts. Uh, See, so he just, you know, he basically got excited. And I said, I mean, he didn't start off just standing there. He did start off sort of just strumming. And then I said, well, why don't you watch Billy Joel? You like Billy Joel. Why don't you watch Billy Joel? You like Kiss. Why don't you watch them? What about trying to amalgamate some of what they're doing? And that's kind of what happened. And it kind of morphed. And he was just playful and had fun and took country music to a new level and did bring in new audiences who he said, I want to give people a lot of bang for the buck. What were you learning during that entire process for yourself and your own personal growth where you were, again, strapped to a rocket ship? I mean, how was that for you professionally? Was it stressful? Or was it the game that you wanted to be in? Um, it was it was a boys club. So there's that. It was just, uh, I was like, this is never, like, I'm just going to 
to do the best I can, try not to take things personally. You know, I, it wasn't easy. It was painful at times. And it was painful. Um, it was painful opening doors and then have people be resentful of that. Because I really do think it, it helped put Nashville on the map. Our success put Nashville on the map. And so to have people be upset about that, it's kind of like I love I love the Dolly quote when she she was asked, "Why are you leaving country music?" When she was doing so much work in L.A., she said, "I'm not leaving country music. I'm taking it with me." Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what we did. So that was difficult to navigate. And you know when you when you ride a rocket ship like that. The success is hard to handle, and it wasn't always easy for Garth, and he had a lot of dips and flows in his life and just emotional health and arguing with the record label and very emotional and then marital problems and all of that, and I cared about him, and that was really hard to watch him go through that and just try trying to keep it all together, and you're in a bubble. You're in a fishbowl, and it's really public. And so then also when I left, it felt really public and it wasn't a nice way. I mean, Bob and I ended up in a lawsuit, which is never fun. And I went through a divorce at the same time. So all of that was really painful. So when I look back on those years, I'm proud of our success, but was it easy? No, it wasn't easy. Um, I just, I'm so grateful that I was as young as I was and that I had that energy and then I had that sort of why not enthusiasm, just almost naivety about it, and just roll up your sleeves and work. Do we ha- do we put the picture up while we were talking about that, or let's uh, let's show the public? Here we go, Pam and Garth back in the day. <laughs> Look at how young we were. You do like vintage clothing back then. Yeah, that's um, that's very bohemian, and, and that scarf is like from Morocco, and then he's got a duster on. I think we bought him that duster, actually. Well, you know, I have like permed hair because my hair is so straight. One of the things I love about you, and I'm so happy that you're one of my friends, and I get to learn from you so many things, is you know, you go from MTV to RCA to Garth, um, and as you just said, that ended in a lawsuit with with Bob, not Garth, but. Uh, but you, you're such a strong woman and you've, you seem to have been someone who's weathered a lot of storms and navigated a lot of change in your career. And mm-hmm. I just wonder how, how you've gone about that and what your advice to people is on navigating change in your professional life and personal possibly. Well, I don't know that I've always been the most gracious in the navigation. I'll be honest. Um, I think when I was the most successful, I was the least in balance. So I had to kind of get back in balance because I really was a workaholic. We all were. And and Garth always says, you know, he'll talk about me. And he's like, she made me work harder than anybody. That's what he'll always say. And I said, well, back at you, dude. You know, well, we sort of joke about that. Um, so... You know, I don't have a personal life. I wasn't, haven't been able to find a man who would put up with me. So there's that. Thankfully, I never really wanted kids. So it's not like I missed those childbearing years or anything like that. But I think it's important to have balance. And I think it's important to take care of yourself. I think it's really important to have some kind of spiritual grounding. 
Luckily, I didn't I didn't smoke cigarettes. I didn't get off doing lots of drugs or drinking or anything like that because a lot of people, they have it and they lose it. They either lose it in divorce or various addictions. So I'm very grateful. And I, I talked to a friend of mine who had sort of a feast and famine happen in his life. And I said, man, what happened to you? Because he was like on top of the world and signing a bunch of artists and running a record label. And he said, I always thought it would never end. And I said, well, that's the difference between you and I. I always knew it would end. <laughs> so you, you know, I was just always taught to be super duper humble, be nice to people, return phone calls, live below your means. And that's how I've been able to kind of survive, you know, and diversify and then get involved with other things I was passionate about, like, you know, preservation and running for office. And, you know, if if all I've all I am is a blip where I I worked with Garth Brooks, thankfully so, very happy and very proud of the work we did together and worked with MTV. It's like, that's pretty damn shallow. I hope there's more to Pam Lewis than that. Right. You know, and so I think that's what I've been trying to do is sort of keep reinventing myself and find other ways to give back and build a legacy. Do you Did you enjoy your time as a quote-unquote politician? Also extremely hard. Maybe even harder than the Garth stuff. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I was so... You talk about getting out of my comfort zone. That was it. Big time. I was the only woman on the council for two years, first of all. So many darn meetings. And I was tooling up and down 65 because I was the only person on the board who was still working. Most people were retired or they worked in Franklin. But I was like going back and forth to Music Row. It would be even more difficult now because we have a lot more traffic. But I, I met so many people I would never have met before. People that I, that I didn't agree with politically. I, I learned so much. I learned how government worked. And I'm still involved. So I feel really grateful for having that experience. Still on councils. I still have meetings. I start many days at City Hall still. So that was a whole dynamic that I'm very grateful to have experienced. And still, I brought a whole... And frankly, Taylor, it was a way for me to heal from some of the pain, too. It's like, okay. Because I really felt very alone through a lot of that with that sort of dissolution. That was about five years of my life. And by the time all that happened, the whole business had changed. The whole business model Mm -hmm. had changed. There weren't all the record labels. There were 360 deals then. And I kind of like, ooh, I kind of lost my footing and who am I, you know? Um, I'm still figuring that out. Well, you were one of the people who were behind so much success that labels started trying to chase that success and ended up flopping. You know what I mean? Yeah. But with politicians, uh, it's interesting. I was thinking about you on the way here because as I know you're not, you're still somewhat involved, but you're not part of the council right now. But uh, but I was really involved in the last election, big time, because <laughs> we had a lot of turbulence. Well, you'll hear a lot of people say how important local politics are. I've heard congressmen say, you know, what we do in Washington is important. But the real shit gets done on the local level. It's it's what affects you most, frankly. And right. so I've really learned a lot. And I still, you know, people like they don't, if you ask which, who our mayor, they don't know who the mayor is. They don't vote. So it's very disheartening to see that, to see the apathy and to realize how hard women, for example, 
fought to get the right to vote in the 20s and finally got it in, I think, 22. We were the pivotal state, by the way. And how the rest of the world just really suffers. So many people do not have a, a democratic way to cast their vote. And we're seeing that play out every day. And to see the apathy in America, it's really sad to me. Um, I travel a lot and I notice and I see how people live and I realize, man, we don't realize how incredible we have it. We're very wasteful people. We're very um, consumer-oriented people. And we don't realize the importance of democracy, but it only works, works if people are informed and get involved. Right. And that's what our forefathers said, not to get preachy about it, but it's true. Well, you can preach all you want. You got plenty of time to preach. No. It's boring. Well, you're such a wise woman. What what role has gratitude played in your life as of recently? Every day. Every day. A friend taught me a gratitude prayer, and I do it every day. And I just, it's not a prayer of supplication. I don't ask for anything. I just say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Every day. And I, I, um, you know, the more that you you are thankful, the more that you are blessed. And the more that you give back, the more that you are blessed. And I don't do it for that reason. It just it really feels good to do that. You know, it's just like small acts of kindness if you can just do it. I mean, like letting people out in traffic, that kind of that kind of stuff. And not taking the bait when somebody does um, do something that's less than honorable. Especially when you know they're trying to get a rise out of you. Yeah. I've been, I mean, I have a temper. But I try try to keep it under. I do a meta meditation. Uh, under wraps. I learned a long time ago, and you just you put a person's name in, and you say, "May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be free of pain. May you be at peace." Before I came here, I did it for you. I did it for oh. Ben. Uh, I try Thank to you. I try to practice that before I'm going to come in here and do that. Thank you for doing. I that. even did Bailey out front. I would have done it for Joey, but Joey's not here today, as you notice. Mm. Uh, you remember Joey, our I producer. Sure do. I hope he's okay. He was sick. He's becoming what I would call an occasional producer. Ruh -roh. He's no, he's working. Okay. Well, so, he was like he was having some illness for a while. A little was he sick one day or something? Like oh that? Was, yeah, he had when Keith was here. He had bronchitis. Bronchitis, yeah. But now he has a new job, so okay. he's only available certain days. But we're blessed to have Ben here filling in. Thank you, Ben. Um. Well, what about? Your advice, you kind of touched on this, but I do want to speak specifically on advice to the drive that it takes to make it over a long, remarkable career. And I know that you have the credibility to speak to such a subject. So why don't you give your advice to people on the drive to, to not just make it, but stay on top over a long career? I think you have to be a lifelong learner. I, I think you have to read people and you have to listen and I think that I think you you attract what you put out. So if you want to work with honorable people, you have to start by being honorable. And this is not an honorable business. <laughs> this is a business rife with crooks and shortcuts. And so I've always felt a little like not quite one of the cool kids. I, I don't know. I, I don't I think I, I had success in spite of me and in spite of the business, frankly. Um, and I think I've always had this sort of desire for spirituality and studied metaphysics. I was raised Catholic. So 
I probably was a teacher in another life or maybe, I don't even know, a spiritual leader. I don't even know what I was. But I'm not a natural fit to be in the music business. That's all I can tell you. It's been a little left of center for me, neither fish nor fowl. And my advice would be, be true to yourself, work hard, work Work with enthusiasm because enthusiasm is contagious. Don't just phone it in. I think I find that the whole notion of mentorship and earning your stripes and being on a trajectory is a little bit different now. And sort of the people I meet, some of the young people I meet. It's just different. They want it quicker. They want to figure out a shortcut. They don't necessarily do the research. They don't know who people are. They don't, they don't maybe don't even know who Garth Brooks is. They certainly don't know who I am. And they it's okay. I'm I'm nobody. But I just feel like there's a lot of impatience and there's no delayed gratification, not with anything. Uh and and I'm probably a little old fashioned that way. You know, I'm a book person. I'm I'm not a I'm not a tablet person. <laughs> I like the smell and the feel of books. Right. I like I like the one on one. I like this. Not that I don't text, not, not that I mean I certainly deal with technology, but you gotta turn it off sometime. It's it it'll suck the marrow out of your bones if you're not careful. We've talked to on this podcast a couple of times about talent shows. Um and I know some people that have been on talent shows and it's been a great success for them. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I know them actually before they made it to the show, they had paid their dues. I worry about some of these people that are getting on these shows and they're like, oh, it's going to be great exposure for me. But they're not really ready yet for the rise Mm-mm. that's going to come along with that exposure because they haven't really become grounded yet no. in, in honing their craft. And that's what made me think when you were talking about that. Well, and also if they're lucky enough to win and get a deal, the deals are bad, really bad. Right. So they're not making any money. It's going to take a long time for them typically to really recoup, if you will. It's almost like lottery winners. I mean, you hear about a lot of lottery winners going broke. Yeah, they can't handle it. You think it would be amazing to have all that money, but you're not, you're not actually ready to know how to handle that money yet. And that's how I look at a lot of, I mean, I think a lot of artists that make it, they, they do win the lottery. And a, a lot of it is luck. You have but, to be emotionally grounded and mature enough to handle it. That's what I meant about handling success. Yeah. I think Vince is one of the best persons that I know that handles success. He doesn't take himself too seriously. He's beloved. He gives a lot back. He found someone he loves. And he seems happy and well-balanced. Now, do I talk to him every day? No, but I'm just saying out, outside looking in, that he seems to be a happy, well-balanced man mm-hmm. and very grateful. And a lot of people I know, they're, they seem to have everything, but we're all just trying to figure it out. Amen. You know, it's just that's another thing. We have got to give people a little bit of leniency. Grace. For one, you know, these these people that are being caught on camera or are uttering one word or saying something one time that just defines their entire life. Well, show kindness. 
Show kindness. You know, Norman Lear just passed away, and he was a mentor to me. I used to have lunch with him. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. He. Okay. I don't know why he liked me, but I met him somehow. I don't. I don't remember how I met him, frankly. And he was like, "Hey, listen." Anytime you're in L.A., call me. Let me know ahead of time. Call the office, and I want to go to lunch with you. And we went to lunch many times, and we would always go to the Ivy, and he would always buy. He would never let me buy, of course. And then he invited me to People for an American Way, and I went to several dinners in uh, New York, and one Garth came with me. And I sat down at this table, and I wasn't paying attention. And I look, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's Barbara Streisand. She was sitting at the table. And I was like... So he just talk about a life well lived mm -hmm. and how he approached everything with gratitude. He was a patriot. He he was a Jew and he and he signed up to 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 um be in the service and and then he had to reconcile with he was killing people. And how did that how did that work with his moral compass? And just if you read anything he's written and and how he used humor to teach and you know he bought the declaration of independence and toured it wow he took it around the world touring it so if i can live just like one tenth as well as norman lear did and died at 101 then i feel like okay i've done something right um all right so i've got two more questions for you because we're getting near the end so this is i guess what we will call our christmas episode it should be out soon, probably before Christmas. What are your top three Christmas songs? Oh, unfair. Man. Oh, goodness. Well, not Mariah Carey. <laughs> I mean, yes, okay, I'm happy for you, Mariah. I would have to say Brenda Lee, Rockin' Around, you know, come on. She just went just, to number one. Just went to number one after 65 years after it came out. So happy for her. Um, I would say White Christmas. By Bing Crosby? No, there's no other. Hello? Uh, uh, hold on, because I will debate you on that. Otis Redding has a white Christmas, and it's one of the best performances ever. He also has one of my favorite, Merry Christmas Baby. Yeah, but okay, From you're asking me. My grandmother loved Bing Crosby. So I just see him in all of his movies, and I that's I mean the movie White Christmas and the Bells of St Mary, and I mean that's why I would say Bing Crosby just from a nostalgia standpoint. Brenda Lee for sure. Mm. Pull this mic closer, Nat. Please, probably. Nat. And then I love I don't what's the name of that song? Fall on your knees. Da 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 da. da. Oh, holy night. Oh, holy night. There oh, you holy go. Night. So that was my father's fave. So. When I hear that song, I think of my daddy. Oh. I guess, yeah. I love Christmas, like, but I love Christmas in its right compartment. But you gave me some old time stuff. I'm talking about like Bruce Springsteen, Santa Claus is coming to town. It's all right. I like it. It's fun. I like. I'm nostalgic. Christmas for its nostalgia. What's your favorite Christmas movie? <gasps> Let's see. It's a Wonderful Life is Pretty Darn Good. White Christmas is Pretty Good. And I would say George C. Scott's version of A Christmas Carol. It's ben, what's your good. favorite Christmas movie? My favorite Christmas movie would have to be National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Boom. You lose two to one. <laughs> also, Deep Cut Snow Day, if anyone knows Snow Day. 
Never seen it. No one has. Okay, well, that was fun. Little Christmas round robin. Um, I'm, so, a, I'm an old fashioned girl. I told you. No, that's wonderful. I love it. I love I love antique movies. You like antique clothes and antique movies. Oh, well, I have. Can I do a plug? Yeah. So this is from anybody here of Manuel. This was actually done by his beautiful wife and co-creator, Ophelia Suevas. And she gave this to me. She made this, handmade this for me for my birthday. For the people just listening, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. So she's bringing me good luck. And I, I think you need to have both of them on. I would love to. I just feel it's very Catholic. Manuel's dressed everybody. But before we get out of here, since we only have a couple minutes, just tell people real quick, you have your own podcast, you have PLA Media, just help me land the plane But it's real quick. nothing without Taylor Swade, who has refused to come on the podcast. I have not. Now we have to return the favor. Okay. Uh, yes, it's called Applaudable Perspectives. I started it during COVID, and we have a plethora of interesting people on it, not just music people. So just people who are doing cool stuff, people are doing positive things for the world, that's and people who just interest me. I did two of them in uh, Ecuador. Yeah, I saw that. I was going to listen to one of the ladies, yeah. the policewoman. Yeah. Yeah. She was cool. So, yeah, um, there's that. And PLA Media, come visit us. We're looking for business. We're always looking for business. Um, what else did you want me to talk about? That's I'm it. single. <laughs> and ready to mingle. All right, to mingle. Well, all right. Uh, that's about it for another country drive. Pam staring at me like I'm in trouble. You're she not has, in trouble. She has that motherly look. No. Oh God, please don't call me a mother. Huh? Ugh. Well, we really appreciate everybody being here, and we hope everyone has a Merry Christmas. I hope this releases before the Christmas episode, uh, before Christmas does. But uh, we're wishing you a very Merry Christmas, Pam. I love you. Well, and let's do lots of good, good prayers for everybody who's suffering right now in the world. Amen. We just had major tornadoes here. Amen. And of course we've got the Ukraine and we've got Morocco and we've got the Holy Land. And so there's a lot there's a lot going on and and here's to wisdom uh, with the next election cycle, twenty twenty four. We've got a new president and new people getting elected. So <sighs> scary stuff. All right. Well, once again, I love you. I really appreciate you being here. Happy 2024, everybody. Amen. Brimming blessings. Brimming with blessings. All right. Bye, y'all.